0: Perhaps the most frequently used word I use when criticizing superhero movies is contrived. It's one of the three big C's of forced story writing. Contrived, convenient, and convoluted. The other two come up all the time, too, but I think I find myself calling forced plot points and devices contrived more often because that's a catch-all term for anything that doesn't fall into the other two subcategories. Convenient and convoluted story elements are types of contrivances. Something is contrived if it doesn't seem to follow naturally from characters' actions and events that happen in a narrative. But just because a writer decides that's what needs to happen next. If it feels like the only reason the hero knows something or does something is because he's read the script, i.e. the writer knows where the story is going but can't figure out how to get there except have a character do or say something he wouldn't otherwise, it's contrived. If a hero shows up at the villain's hideout just because it's time for that to happen, with no explanation as to why he knows where the villain is, that's contrived. I can deal with a little hammy acting, or poorly integrated CGI, or inappropriate score, or melodramatic dialogue, but nothing takes me out of a superhero movie faster than contrived narrative cheats that scream, there's a writer here in neon lights. Intellectually, I know I'm watching a movie and that it's all made up by somebody, or more often here in America, by an obnoxiously large committee, but I don't want to feel like I'm in a pitch meeting, where someone is telling me a shoddily crafted story and bullet points, some of which they're just making up as they go along. I want the illusion of reality. I want to get wrapped up in the fiction to believe the lie and forget that it's really happening. That's the power of fiction, the benign lie. With the exception of alternative story types, where contrivance and conceit is part of the genre's convention, like parody or farce or, to some extent, melodrama, the best stories make an audience care deeply and passionately about someone who does not exist. And they mine some kind of human truth about the individual experience of being a mortal on planet Earth, or about the society we live in, or about the history of our species. And the great narrative cancer to achieving those things is contrivance. It reminds me of the man behind the curtain. It makes the seams show. It often seems to rob characters of their free will. As a writer, as you're playing God, you can't take that away from the people you've created, or they watch like pieces being moved around in a board game. If I wanted to see that, I'd watch a televised chess tournament. There's a reason those aren't universally popular. And contrivance can ruin serious narrative by creating unintentionally funny situations. The writer should never force a character to do anything, but rather, to quote the tick, put Destiny's palm on the small of his back pushing, pushing. Of course, stories are by definition contrived, at least to some degree. I live by that out of body experience of writing. I'm a hardcore proponent of letting your characters take you where they will. I've written pieces that seem to write themselves, and those are usually the ones that don't feel so contrived. But I also think it's important to have foresight, to give your work some real thought when you're not working on it, so you have at least an inkling of where you might be going when you start writing again. Now, I'm not an outliner, but I'm also not against the outline. Everyone works differently, and how much you need to plan your story tends to be based on your own personality. It's often a right brain, left brain exercise. I like to have an ending in mind and write toward that, even if I don't have most of the beats figured out in between. So I'm fully admitting that even as a firm believer in character-driven fiction, there are things I have to figure out the logistics of finagling in my own fiction, even if I'm going to the zone, like in Pixar's Soul, when I write. In review, I'll sometimes say, couldn't you have contrived a more believable way to get X character to Y place? Fiction is a fabrication, so contriving is the name of the game. But the trick is for those contrivances to be so organic, so logical, and is based in a character's motivation and personality it goes totally unnoticed, so that if you told a viewer, I already knew, say, the people in the two boats at the end of The Dark Knight weren't going to blow each other up, I just didn't know why until I wrote it, that viewer might be surprised. The job of writing fiction is just like doing magic. Everyone knows it's an illusion. When I say something is contrived, I'm not complaining that it's fake. Of course it's fake. I'm complaining that I'm being reminded it's fake, while I want to be taken in by the lie. If you notice bad sleight of hand in a magic trick, like you see a magician palm a ball or a card and it ruins the whole trick, You're not going to be upset because the magic wasn't real. You're upset because the magician didn't tell a good lie. And it's much harder to get away with contrivance in a genre with a standard, rigid story structure. Certainly superhero stories can subvert the formula, especially these days, but there are good reasons not to, to just tell a good classic good versus evil story or hero's journey story. They continue to resonate because there's something universal and timeless about that formula. And I've seen plenty of movies that try to get around a genre formula and are just as contrived, or more so, than they might have been if they stuck with it. Looking at you, Batman v Superman, and you can take a basic plot skeleton and tell a compelling story driven by characters' actions. Batman Begins and Superman both did it with the traditional origin story. Guardians of the Galaxy did it with the traditional team-building superhero story. Hellboy... Batman Mask of the Phantasm, The Rocketeer, Iron Man, Unbreakable are all examples of the traditional hero's journey story. The unlikely hero who didn't ask for power or an important destiny, who doesn't readily accept the call and discovers something profound about himself along the way. For most superhero stories, you need a hero with some kind of motivation, usually a tragic one, to put on a costume and try to save his family or his neighborhood or the world. And he or she needs to be special in some way. You have to contrive some unique skill set or a way to get your protagonist their superpowers. There has to be an antagonist, usually somebody else in a costume, who stands in the way because he or she wants the opposite of what your hero wants and is often a dark reflection for your hero, often has an opposing ideology. These things are usually spectacles, so you have to come up with organic ways to get to exciting and rousing set pieces, which is where these things get into the most trouble in looking too contrived. You have to make it personal for the hero so there's dramatic tension, and that can be contrived. How many girlfriends get kidnapped at the end of superhero movies that a bad guy just found out about, so those stakes are there? Sam Raimi's Spider-Man. Or where the hero's significant other is in danger and the bad guy doesn't even know the hero's secret identity. Vicki Vale in Batman 89. And you need a big standoff at the end that it feels all roads were actually leading to. And of course, the hero has to win before the credits roll. If you go by the book, a lot of that story is already told for you. And that's a structure that doesn't look a whole lot like real life. It's based on wish-fulfillment fantasies dating back to the 30s in comics and adventure novels even before that. It's hard to make those stories believable, but it can be done. These days, we do break out of that mold. Logan, Joker, but the vast majority of superhero movies, while they might deal with heavy, real-life subject matter, question the protagonist's altruism and competence and deconstruct classic archetypes through a modern lens. There's still clear good guys and bad guys, and the hero still usually wins at the end of those. And that means that it's still hard not to fall into the trap of contrived superhero movie tropes, several of which go all the way back to the Dick Donner days of Superman. Today, I'm going to give you two top 10 lists for the price of one. I'll get to my picks for most contrived moments in superhero movies a little later, but first, I wanted to make a list of some of those major tropes I've already mentioned, because a lot of the moments I picked don't squarely fall into any of these. A lot of them are so outrageous, they stand in a league of their own. But there are a lot of contrived plot devices that show up in several movies, which I've observed and written about over the years on this series. So I thought they were worth revisiting. Some of these are also convenient and/or convoluted, and it's crazy that after they crop up time and again, we still get movies that think they can pull the wool over our eyes and we won't notice. Like they're Raza Ghoul's ninjas or something. They're hiding up in the rafters, but they're also wearing bright pink spandex. So my number 10 trope is a pattern I see a lot, fan service dialogue, stuff characters say that are completely out of character, but the movie wants to squeeze in a cute or clever reference. Most references to the Superman radio show and serials are like this. It happens even more in TV shows like Smallville and every series in the Arrowverse, but you do get it in movies like Superman Returns too, Truth, Justice, and other stuff anytime anyone has ever said, look up in the sky. I'll include forced explanations for character and team names here, too, because those also weirdly look like clunky fan service a lot to me. So often, you can just have heroes call themselves whatever they're called, but some movies have to give them some cute origin, either to try to make it seem more realistic somehow, or just to make the audience squeal because they finally said it. It's weird that Venom is never mentioned in Spider-Man 3, but that's maybe better than Billy in the 2017 Power Rangers movie coming up with Mama Zord and then Mega Zord, or Blob mistaking Wolverine when he calls him Bub in X-Men Origins. Did you just call me Blob? Or Deadshots were some kind of suicide squad and the absolute worst offender. Maybe the most painful scene in a superhero movie, The Fantastic Four trying to come up with their team name at the end of Fant Forstick. The Human Torch and the Torchettes. Ugh. Number nine. Something, something, the bad guy is defeated. I wish I had a quarter for every time I left a theater racking my brain trying to remember how the villain died or was apprehended by the hero. Sometimes it takes another viewing before I even remember if the bad guy died. It's sometimes so routine and rushed that it doesn't even matter how the hero accomplished it. You know the good guy is gonna win, so there's just some CG gobbledygook and voila! The day is saved! It's one of the many things that can make an action film feel too much like a ride than a story, and can really undercut the cleverness and resourcefulness of a good protagonist. Although, let's face it, that happens more often in movies where the protagonist isn't all that compelling in the first place. That ridiculous clear-screen energy move Spawn does with his eyes to take out Malbolge's army at the end of the live-action Spawn film, the implosion that sucks Eddie Brock and the Venom symbiote into it somehow at the end of Spider-Man 3, the We Are Legion thing with Blackheart the end of Ghost Rider, whatever is happening with Hulk and his father in Angley's Hulk movie. And often, the bad guy gets defeated off-screen and in a big ball of light, like in Fantastic Four Rise of the Silver Surfer, when the Surfer kills Galactus with his sliver of the power cosmic that he got from Galactus in the first place. Oh, and that reminds me. Those endings often see heroes beating a vastly more powerful foe for no reason other than they're supposed to win, which also happens in Fanforstic with Doom's telekinesis, which he should have been able to use to subdue the, air quotes, Fantastic Four in, like, 30 seconds, but just uses it to throw rocks. Number eight. I have no money, but this suit cost the studio $130,000. I know, I've been complaining about this one since I reviewed the first Spider-Man movie like a hundred years ago. But it's insanely contrived. I don't expect everything in a superhero movie to be wholly realistic any more than I do in a comic book. But you can't have your cake and eat it too. If you start with a crappy homemade costume and then suddenly you have the amazing one you wanted to make in the first place, I need to know where the money comes from. If it's never talked about and you just start with a great suit, I can see that as a conceit, but not in something like the first Sam Raimi Spider-Man movie. In that, we know Peter had only $100 to his name, which he got from a sleazy wrestling manager in a scene that's also super contrived for totally different reasons. And the MCU has moved far away from that sort of thing, pretty careful to explain its resources for all its characters, and that's one of the reasons why, to some fan chagrin, Tony Stark footed the bill for that version suit. There isn't another example that egregious, but I'm not sure how the Amazing version afforded that suit either, unless it's literally made of basketballs. The sequel has no such easy explanation. I guess it's mostly in Spider-Man movies, but I felt the need to put it here instead of using that specific example in my top 10 moments, because it's in more than one franchise. Hilariously, the most realistic costume for a poor superhero is probably Blank Man. Number seven, the time passes solution. A huge problem we spent an entire movie or two dealing with, but because the franchise wants to move on to something else, it's conveniently solved off screen or in a montage or between movies. The destroyed rainbow bridge in Asgard at the end of the first Thor movie, where it was treated like a thing nobody knew how to fix, and Thor was tragically separated from his true love for an indefinite amount of time, But Thor can already get back to Earth by Avengers, and the bridge is back to normal in Thor the Dark World. Tony Stark's arc reactor is an even better example. First movie, he needs it to survive, or the shrapnel in his chest will kill him. Second movie, the arc reactor is poisoning him, and he has to create a new element in the shape of a triangle to survive. Iron Man 3, he's in surgery at the end to have it removed with absolutely no explanation as to why that's suddenly possible and how it's done. If your franchise does this and it has three movies, you do not get to call that a proper trilogy. If that's supposed to be one story, it's especially lazy and contrived writing. Number six, hey, that's impossible. I guess that just means you're a weirdo. This is another thing I've observed more in Spider Man movies than anything, and in shows about teenage superheroes, like Smallville. A movie will want to illustrate a protagonist's difficulty in getting the hang of his powers when he first gets them, and the danger of someone finding out about them. But it has to contrive some reason nothing comes of incidents of accidentally using powers in front of people. So if a character like Peter Parker shoots webs out of his wrist, or has impossible reflexes, or dents a goalpost after throwing throwing a ball at it too hard, or a basketball sticks to his hand, kids around him have to see that crazy, unexplainable thing happen, be totally dismayed, and then just chalk it up to his being a freak and moving on. That's not an explanation. That's a lame cop-out, and I see it all the time. You'd think there'd be somebody like Coleman Reese in The Dark Knight who tries to out Bruce Wayne as Batman when he looks at company records and puts two and two together. Wouldn't someone at Peter's school do a little investigating and try to figure out why a classmate seemed able to do the impossible? And sometimes amazing things happen around people who conveniently aren't looking while it's happening. Like when Peter almost blows up his class's school bus on a field trip with a Stark drone in Spider-Man Far From Home. I'm not sure any Spider-Man movie is the most contrived superhero film overall, but I'm starting to think it must be the most contrived property between the three iterations. Number five, it's a small world after all. I get that mistaken identity makes for good classic drama. That's why Shakespeare uses it in most, if not all, of his comedies. And it's a good way to explore the notion of identity and the metaphorical masks we all wear. But it's not easy to make coincidence believable. Another tried and true superhero trope is the lovers or best friends who happen to be bitter enemies as their alter egos. Two sets of relationships that form totally independently from each other and usually in a city of millions of people. Gee, how convenient. Batman Returns has this with Bruce Wayne and Selina Kyle. The first Spider-Man movie has this with Norman Osborn and Peter Parker. Peter's best friend happens to be the son of the guy who becomes a psychopath, and Peter has to take him down as Spider-Man. This happens in comics all the time, too, of course, and I think it's a thing most people give a pass to. But the more I see it done in a more sophisticated way, the more old, messy examples are more glaring. It's always less contrived if one duplicitous party secretly knows the other's identity, even if the other doesn't. We don't see this as often in modern superhero movies because we're starting to get as far away from secret identities as we are sidekicks. The Marvel films have hardly anyone with an alter ego, and when we go there, it doesn't last very long. And the occasional chance meeting can work. Coincidences do happen. But again, the trick is not to use those as a crutch. Here's a tip, aspiring writers. Coincidences that create conflict look less convenient than coincidences that hand a protagonist something he wants for free. Number four. There can be only one. If there are two villains in a superhero movie, one has to die almost always. This doesn't always read contrived, though. When Two-Face dies at the end of The Dark Knight, it doesn't watch to me like Nolan is trying to fill the dead villain quota that movies like Batman Forever and Spider-Man 3 do to me. It just happens to continue that pattern. It helps that Batman has to make a major life-altering choice based on Dent's death, and that thematically, the whole movie is building toward Batman consciously choosing not to be the hero in order to beat a villain in the Joker that challenges convention. Again, it reads less contrived because it creates a problem for Batman. But more often than not, there's one villain left alive to tease the audience for more to come, and one has to die so it's a bigger surprise when the other one doesn't which is an established trope with Catwoman at the end of Batman Returns. It used to be shocking to me when there were two villains and they both live, like at the end of Daredevil, but in the theatrical cut, it watches like the tired cliché until you get to the mid-credits scene revealing that Bullseye is still alive. Sometimes the way the villain dies is the problem. That aforementioned rush death I can't always even explain. And sometimes it's because the hero obligatorily saves or refuses to kill the other bad guy, even if he's left a trail of bodies on his way there. Because this is the moment he's supposed to be the better man. Which also happens in Daredevil. And that leads me to number three. I'm not the bad guy because I left the worst person in the movie alive, regardless of whether that change of heart was natural. Daredevil kills lowlifes and, for all he knows, killed Bullseye moments earlier, but inexplicably leaves Kingpin alive to artificially resolve a character arc. Nothing happened between dropping Bullseye out of a church to getting to Kingpin's office that provides that opportunity for change. Same thing with Batman trying to keep Joker from falling to his death at the end of Batman 89. Number two, OP characters can clock out earlier. X-Men is the biggest culprit of this one. A situation will be obviously manufactured to get rid of overly powerful characters like Xavier as early as possible, because the movie can't figure out how to tell the story at once if a guy who can control people's minds is standing around the whole time. And it happens in every movie in the original X-Men trilogy, and in two and three with both Xavier and Cyclops. That's partly why I didn't mind that second set of X-Men movies focusing so heavily on Xavier. Those films are more dramatic and exciting because compelling situations were developed, at least in the first two, to challenge the X-Men despite Xavier's powers. And in Days of Future Past, his losing his powers isn't a way to take him off the board, but a source of interesting internal conflict and creates unique challenges for Wolverine's time travel mission. And, number one, it's the most classic and often the most entertaining of all contrivances. I'm a god, cause my name's in the title. That's when the script conveniently gives a hero whatever power he or she needs in the moment to get out of a situation, even though it's never been mentioned before. It's a cheat because there aren't established rules. Or worse, there might appear to be rules, but they change when the story hits a wall. The Superman movies after Donner's original are the major example. Telekinesis beams coming out of Kryptonian fingertips when Superman never had that before. And if he did, why not ever use it? That weird teleporting around the fortress thing in Superman 2, and don't forget about the infamous magic kiss. We don't see this kind of thing as much anymore, but the most recent example is Wonder Woman 84, which seems to do it as an homage to the weird Superman movies, and it achieves the same thing it did there. It takes me out, and it makes the movie really awkward. So now, at long last, let's get to my top 10 most contrived moments list. I've talked about several of these before, but it's been a long time for most of them. Some of these fall into some of the categories above and are extreme enough examples I thought they were worth including, and some are their own special sort of contrived. Number 10, the tragic but inevitable ending of Captain America the First Avenger. Steve Rogers crashes his plane and gets frozen in ice, which he has to do because that's how he winds up in our time. It's one of those moments where the execution is excellent, but the situation itself is contrived. Red Skull gets sucked into the Cosmic Cube, and Steve is piloting a kamikaze jet heading to New York with a bunch of bombs on it. If he doesn't do something, it will crash in the city and kill millions of people. Peggy talks to him over radio and says she can help him find a safe landing site. But he says there's not going to be a safe landing. I don't know why. Steve looks at a schematic of the plane on a monitor that shows the missiles. And I guess that's supposed to be enough to somehow convince the audience he can't land the plane somewhere. But Peggy says we have time. Steve says there's not enough time. This thing is moving too fast and it's heading for New York. So why, just because there are armed missiles on board, can he not land the plane safely? I know he's not a pilot, but Peggy offers to ask Howard Stark for help. He could talk Steve through a landing procedure, and they're not time bombs. And they're not going to blow up on impact with the ground, I wouldn't think, even in the event of a rocky landing. If he can force it down, why can't he steer it away from New York? There's no discussion of fuel, so the issue doesn't seem that he's out of gas. This should be a simple situation to present in a more organic way. Obviously, this has to end with Steve in the ice. So you contrive it this way. The plane is on autopilot. Rigged to crash in New York, the controls don't respond at all. Steve can't use the stick to steer it in any direction, even down. So he has no choice but to sabotage it and hope it crashes in the water. He uses his super strength to destroy an engine or the rudder or something that will make it impossible for the plane to stay in the air. And that way, it's a heroic sacrifice that only he, with the abilities the super soldier serum gives him, would be capable of making. It's the only weird contrivance like that in the movie which makes it stand out more. This story is too good for that ending. And if you ignore the fact that it seems like Steve could have totally avoided that sacrifice, it's a fantastic conclusion to an arc about a man who always puts other people and his country ahead of his own needs. Steve crashes the plane because he has to or there's no Captain America in the Avengers. Number nine the Richard Lester version of Superman 2 has lots of silly contrivances, like the aforementioned random powers Superman and the evil Kryptonians suddenly have, but which Superman never displayed before, including that ridiculous magic kiss that Clark uses to reset the status quo at the end so Lois won't know he's Superman which raises massive ethical and logical questions. Not only is it kind of a violation, but how does Clark know he won't give her total amnesia? But I'm actually going with a different example from this movie, because it happens in different ways in both Lester and Donner's version, and it's a cop-out way to create the occasion for story in the first place. Without this contrivance, there is no movie. In each version of the film, Superman throws something that explodes near Earth's atmosphere out in space, shattering the Phantom Zone and releasing Zod and his cohorts. I would have liked it better in the Donner version if you didn't have to watch the movie like Superman 1 ended differently. It could have been a direct consequence of Superman defying Jor-El and selfishly spinning the Earth backward to save Lois and change the course of human events but we know Donner always intended the time travel thing to be at the end of 2, and 1 was supposed to have a different ending, so it was never gonna be that. And so both versions of this are equally hokey. But if we could have gotten that, it would have at least been a way to tie the movies together directly and pay off that opening scene with Zod getting sent to the Phantom Zone. Anyway, in Donner's version, the missile Superman froze in space hits the Zone and frees Zod and his gang. In the theatrical version, it's the shockwave of the hydrogen bomb Superman takes from some terrorists in Paris and throws into space. It's dumb for the same reason with both. First, the Phantom Zone is conveniently right outside Earth. Why did it travel on the same trajectory Kal-El did when his parents intentionally sent him to Earth in a rocket? Why does it move at the speed of light when it has no means of its own propulsion, which it would have to do to reach our solar system in that amount of time? And second, perhaps it's thrown to our region of space by the shockwave of the explosion of Krypton, but that wouldn't make something go to warp speed. It's still convenient, it would just happen to go in exactly the same direction the baby pond did, and most importantly, it's a shockwave in the Lester version that blows the Phantom Zone open. Why didn't the destruction of the planet do that in the first place? It's there because it has to be to make this story happen. Number eight, this one requires little explanation. Spider-Man 3, the Venom symbiote just falls out of the sky and right next to a disguised superhero in a park so it can possess him and make him dark and edgy. I mean, Peter couldn't find it in a lab somewhere or there couldn't be some reason he's in space at the beginning and finds it. Nah, it just falls out of the sky. You can't say it's not comic accurate. At least it comes from space. Gee, how convenient it happens to find the only person in the city with superpowers. It happens because the studio is making Sam Raimi adapt Venom, and his heart is just not in this part of the movie. Number seven. This is the most recent example of powers suddenly in a scene to manufacture a way to get to the next plot point. Wonder Woman 84, Diana makes a jet invisible that she and Steve Trevor steal because otherwise they'll get caught by the military. She says she always wondered how her father made Themyscira invisible. It's apparently just a trick you do by being related to a god, touching something and concentrating really hard. She only did it once in 50 years with a coffee cup. She talks about it like it's really hard and was a mystery that eluded her all this time. But now she can do it, and with something enormous. I guess because adrenaline... The same thing happens with her ability to fly later, too, where, based on a vague description of flight from Steve Trevor, she's able to ride wind currents and do it with her body. But the invisible jet thing strikes me as even lazier. Maybe that's intentional, because director Patty Jenkins is trying to make an authentic 80s superhero movie, and some of those had silly cartoon logic like that. But whether it works for you or it doesn't, you can't deny it's pretty contrived. Oh, and why does it evade radar just because you can't see it? She can do it because the invisible jet is iconic and nobody had a more plausible way to make a jet invisible. Number six. There are several examples I might have gone to with The Dark Knight Rises. Like Gordon conveniently sending all the cops into the sewer to get trapped so they can't mob Bane and Batman is Gotham's only hope. But I'm going with the thing that always most irked me about that movie. Bruce goes back to Gotham and makes his presence known by making a fiery bat symbol on the side of a building. Even though Bane has Gotham under siege by threat of a nuclear weapon, and has said, and made sure Bruce saw him say it on TV, that if anyone tries to get in, he will blow up Gotham. It's bad enough that Bruce seems to take his time when there's a literal ticking time bomb, having a shower and change and dramatically sneaking up on Selina Kyle, but it's asinine that he'd announce his return like that instead of sneaking up on Bane. It's like he read the script and knew Bane would make an exception for him so they could duke it out in front of the snowy steps of City Hall. He does it because theme trumps story here. The symbol of the bat is more important than whether Bruce's character motivation makes any sense. Number five. The entire third act of Batman 89 is contrived, confusing, and hardly resembles actual storytelling. It remains one of my favorite movies, obviously. I've done so much material on that movie alone, it could have its own YouTube channel, but I'm the first to admit that nothing in that climax makes any sense, and the characters certainly aren't moving the story along with logical choices based on the situation. But I have to pick a moment, not 25 whole minutes of a movie. So while I could have picked the Joker's thugs waiting for Batman on top of a church they have no idea he's gonna be at, I have to go with Batman shooting at Joker from the Batwing right after the trust sequence and after Batman steals Joker's balloons. He fires machine gun rounds and missiles at point-blank range. The Joker is in his sights, clearly from the first-person POV we get in the scope, and not only does Batman completely miss every shot, but Joker somehow isn't remotely worried he'll get hit and doesn't even flinch. He stands there like he's read the script and knows he has plot armor. Then he pulls a three-foot-long gun from his pants, which I used to question the logistics of until I realized the barrel is retractable. I saw this like 300 times before I noticed Joker telescopes it back to pistol length when he and Vicky enter the cathedral. And Joker fires one shot, downing the batwing. On the VHS tape I grew up with, there's an ad for a Warner Brothers catalog featuring Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck that plays before the feature. And that is really appropriate, because the whole thing degenerates into a Looney Tunes cartoon at the end. That's not a dramatic action scene in a serious movie, that's a sight gag. And yeah, the Joker is a funny character, but the logic of the piece changes to accommodate him. It happens because Batman has to crash his Batwing somehow to wind up in that church, and because he can't kill the Joker before the big finish, and the production really wants to use a heavily armored vehicle that the Joker shouldn't remotely have the facilities to go up against. Number four, X-Men Origins Wolverine is another movie with so many contrivances, it's hard not to just list the whole thing. It's the superhero movie with the most prequelitis, forcing things to happen retroactively in inorganic, in overly cute ways, because those events have to occur and it's too informed by what comes later, rather than approaching the piece as if it were the first thing in the continuity you've seen, making it a story unto itself. Why can't the events of Weapon X be what we were told they were in X2, just fleshed out? No, Logan's involvement has to be an elaborate master manipulation plot by Stryker, and he can't just get amnesia because of the rigors of the adamantium procedure. It had to be Stryker's hackneyed and convoluted plan all along. Which leads me to easily the most contrived moment in one of the most contrived movies. Not just of superhero fare, but of anything. Stryker says that if he shoots Wolverine with an animanium bullet, he won't have any memories from before the program. In also, one of the dumbest lines in any movie of any kind, his memories won't grow back. How on earth could he possibly know what would happen if he did that? Stryker would have to A, know the bullet will pierce Wolverine's skull. B, not kill him, and C, will definitely lodge in the right place to affect memory. And Stryker explaining that is actually more contrived than the fact that it actually works. It happens because Wolverine has to lose his memory somehow, but the way he seemed to before the retcon just wasn't dramatic and exciting enough. Number three. Most of these are from movies I don't think are particularly good and because the story starts from a forced and sloppy place, or riddled with contrivances. But one of the most egregious examples is actually from an overall good movie, and to a lot of people, a beloved one. That's Avengers Endgame. There are a few messy plot points in that movie, particularly regarding the time travel, but I laughed out loud at the audacity of the inciting incident of this story, The thing that has to happen, or not only is there no movie, but everyone that turned to dust in the somber Thanos snap at the end of Infinity War would stay dead for infinity. Five years later, a rat happens to step on Hank Pym's quantum realm machine, starts it up, and releases Scott Lang, who's been trapped in the Quantum Realm. I like how the synopsis on Wikipedia just reads, Scott Lang escapes from the Quantum Realm, with no explanation as to how it happens, so as not to make the movie sound as goofy as it is in that moment. That rat saved the universe. More than any one of the 115 superheroes in the epic high school reunion that is that climactic battle with Thanos at the end, where everyone comes through a portal a few at a time, like there was a big rehearsal for it, Somebody should make that rat an Avenger. Sure, coincidences happen, but you couldn't come up with a less haphazard way to bring back half the living beings in existence. Did Doctor Strange see that when he looked ahead to different permutations of the future? Was there only one future where a rat stepped on that machine? It happens because nobody had a better idea about how to turn that thing on and bring back Ant-Man. Number two, uh, I am grimacing just thinking about this one again. The most forced self-sacrifice I've ever seen. Man of Steel. The moment where Jonathan Kent won't let his son Clark save him from a tornado. For fear someone will see him use his powers, and the government will take him away and dissect him or something. Absolutely every single thing about this is contrived, and I could have separated it into separate moments and wasted half the list with it. Time for more bullet points. First, As I broke down in excruciating detail when I reviewed Man of Steel, under an overpass is the last place you want to be in a tornado, and any Kansas farmer worth his salt, frankly, anyone who lives in the Midwest for any amount of time, would know that. Second, there shouldn't be anyone else there. The other people taking shelter under the overpass are also mostly all from this region, and were given the same common-sense education about what to do in a tornado I was in elementary school. Third, there's so much wind and commotion, no one standing under that overpass would have been paying that much attention to Clark if he super speeds over and saves his father from getting sucked up by a tornado. They're more preoccupied with their own sense of self-preservation. And if they did see anything, would they have the time or wherewithal to get it on video, to have any proof at all? And if they told anyone who would believe them, there's not a lot of visibility. They're in the middle of a tornado. This isn't the same situation as kids Peter knows seeing him bend a goalpost when he throws a ball too hard. Fourth, Clark has plenty of time with his super speed to rescue his dad. Maybe his father doesn't approve, but I can't believe both of these guys decide it's too risky. Neither is reasonable or is thinking like a real person in this scene, regardless of his character motivations. I might buy that Jonathan is misguided enough to think this is necessary, but I really don't buy Clark going along with it. Fifth, Clark could have super sped to rescue the dog. No one was looking in their direction in that moment, and then kept Jonathan with the family so he wouldn't be out in the open when the tornado got there. Jonathan only dies because he goes for the dog, but the overpass is super unsafe, so everyone but Clark should have been injured or gotten killed anyway. It happens because Jonathan thinks there's some arbitrary time in the future when Clark should use his powers, but not yet. And because the movie wants him to die for his weird, poorly conceived beliefs, but it has to be more exciting than the heart attack that killed the character in the original Superman film. And number one, anybody surprised the top two are both from the DCEU? Yep, it's Batman v Superman which I have yet to review, and which I'm fully expecting to be one of the longest reviews I've ever written. It's probably the most contrived superhero movie ever made, and like a couple others on this list, it was hard to narrow it down to just one moment and I'm not going to pick the one you expect. The Batman and Superman's mom's name is both Martha, so now Batman doesn't think Superman is a threat anymore, and their the best of friends thing is insane, especially because of how forced Superman saying it is. Why would you even think to say Martha in that moment instead of my mom? And why didn't you try harder to explain the kidnapping plot to Batman before you threw him into a bunch of walls and columns? But what happens right after takes the cake for me. Superman needs the kryptonite spear Batman tried to use against him to kill Doomsday. So instead of just letting Wonder Woman throw the spear at Doomsday, Wonder Woman who clearly has an arm and aim and is great at chucking things some distance, like her lasso, Superman has to fly with a big piece of kryptonite having no idea if it will kill him while he's in the air and, by the way, already weakened from his fight with Batman. All because the movie really wants to loosely adapt Death of Superman and The Dark Knight Return simultaneously, for some reason. Yeah, let's wonder what the world would be like without Superman in this continuity, this wonderfully inspiring figure after we just made a plot point about how he'd be a fascist despot if Lois Lane died. It happens because Zack Snyder wanted to be all dark and edgy by killing Superman at the end of the first movie that finally put him together with Batman. Just, wow. I'm gonna be lucky if the rewind when I finally stop avoiding it is any more coherent than the movie is. Those are the big examples I thought of. Here are some quick runners-up that I also considered. Rita Repulsa getting resurrected at exactly the same time some kids find the power coins and try to figure out how to morph events that don't interconnect or trigger each other in any way in the 2017 Power Rangers movie. Eric Sack's henchmen leaving Raphael and Splinter, who they think are dead or knocked out, in the turtle's lair when what they're after is the mutagen in the turtle's blood in 2014's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. They kidnap three alive and kicking eight-foot-tall behemoths who are hard to contain and control when there are two more incapacitated specimens they could have taken instead, or at least in addition to. Suicide Squad. Something shoots the plane carrying the squad out of the sky, and we're never told what it is. It crashes because our anti-heroes need to be on the street for a big fight. I've never seen anything like that. Oh, who crashed us? Doesn't matter, let's move on. Probably one of the many things left on the cutting room floor for that movie. And this one's way minor, but always cracked me up. From another Turtles movie, Vanilla Ice making up a rap about the Ninja Turtles on the spot, complete with well-rehearsed dance choreography when he can't possibly know the Turtles are supposed to be ninjas and has never seen them before, in Ninja Turtles 2, The Secret of the Ooze. Coming up with a way to get where you want to go when you have a destination, but not a mode of transportation, can be difficult but not impossible. It isn't true that as long as it has four wheels and can get you from point A to point B, it's doing its job. You want the most inconspicuous vehicle you can get. Contrivances should be Nissan Sentras or Chevy Malibus, not a Hearse or a Hummer or even a Ferrari. If I notice it, it's too obviously a cheat to move the story along. When it should look like it comes as a result of characters' actions, even if it didn't start that way on paper. Contrivances can be insulting, but they're also sometimes the most entertaining things in superhero movies, just not for the reasons they might be intended to be. Ba, ba. Thanks a lot for listening, folks. Hope you enjoyed it. I had a ton of fun putting this one together. Next time, I'm finally going to tackle one of the major movies that I've been kind of putting off for a long time. It's X Men Apocalypse. So look forward to that. I want to say thanks as always to all of our patrons. If you would like to support the show, uh, Superhero Rewind and Geek evolution at large, you can go to patreon.com slash geekvolution. At the bottom $2 tier, you can get access to early episodes of Superhero Rewind wine at the $5 tier you can put in tweet length reviews and you can do that for the very next review X-Men Apocalypse and at the $10 tier you can become a Patreon producer and I'd like to thank all of our producers right now including Ironbat1993, Zach, Wendell Jones, Victor, Nick Mana, Nicholas Morgan, Michael Micheletti, Michael Gulick, Kareem Roberts, Jacob Schneider, Damon McGay, CM Productions, TH1, the Day Ghost, Stone Gasman, Snuffles Wrights, Red Bandit, Lone Wolf Jedi of Gotham, Kevin, Carl Maxey, Bag Studios, Josh Hughes, John McLean, Ian McKee, Elliot Slater, Dylan Muschiello, Chewbacca's lover, Caleb Azim, and Red Bandit. You guys are wonderful. Thanks once again for listening, and I'll see you again real soon with X-Men Apocalypse.